Welcome back to the Green Element podcast, where we feature business leaders and innovators transforming their operations to be more environmentally and socially sustainable. I'm your host, Will Richardson, and I can't wait to meet our guest today and help you on your journey of sustainability. Phil, welcome to the Green Element podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, you are one of the two founders for the Carbon Literacy Project. Indeed. Um, Could you please tell us a bit more about what the Carbon Literacy Project is, please? Well, where do I start? Um, Back in the day, um, our social enterprise was involved in Manchester's first climate action plan. And Manchester has a heck of a heritage. In we, we always hark back to 1782, where if you stood in front of Manchester Cathedral looking up Shoot Hill, you would see this construction as a mill was being built. And this iron object was being bolted onto the side of the mill. And it was this guy, Richard Arkwright, as the first person to have a steam-powered cotton mill in a city. And in terms of Manchester becoming the first uh, modern urban city in in that way, we feel we've got a bit of an obligation to uh, the world because of our <laughs> our role in uh, establishing that awkward relationship with fossil fuels. So we were thinking about how Manchester could lead. We were thinking about uh, what was missing in the equation, because needless to say, this is a huge uh, stakeholder process and ideas and policies tech were all flying in and there was a moment in one of these oak panelled gothic committee rooms in the, in the town hall in Manchester where it was clear that we had the technology we had the policy ideas but there's a huge gulf on engagement in in business terms we'd set up the supply side and ignored the demand side there was no one at any level, at any scale, who would say, yeah, I'm going to write a check for this. I'm going to vote for this. So we identified this this chasm of engagement. And in the middle of this meeting, um, I piped up and went, well, we need Manchester to be carbon literate. Everyone went, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, great idea. Absolutely. And it became a big, audacious goal of the plan. Um, I think I knew what I, what we meant at the time in that we needed a large scale culture shift where acting on climate change became just mainstream where that recognition just came through but not just that that we the the means to do that become clear as well so we needed a large scale culture shift which we labeled carbon literacy and then we cracked on with um filling in the detail behind the headline and your background isn't sustainability, is it? The environment. You've got a rather checkered history, um, <laughs> and, which makes it, I think, much more. You're much more well-rounded because you've you've seen lots of different parts of society, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, my first career. Um, was with an organization called the British Broadcasting Corporation. Um, uh, After serving time in local radio, um, I ended up making documentaries for Radio 4 and the like, um, which was a fantastic young person's career, which inadvertently led me to riding a tandem 
back from Sydney uh, to raise awareness and money for rainforest conservation. It was a situation where I'd made a documentary about two people doing the same and thought, I don't want to be a reporter on this anymore. I want to do it. (laughs) (laughs) And then fortunately or unfortunately, um, someone enabled us to do this and spent 20 months having my brain and other parts of me rewired um, doing this extraordinary journey, which turned me from, I I was, I was a a signed up member of the local friends, of the earth group, you know, as a, Save the whale, save the trees, save the shrimp type. So you've, you've always had it inside you. Yeah, absolutely. That that, right. that, that that was there. But you travel in the global south. Um, you meet people outside of the tourist traps and you can't help but be a, uh, fundamentally changed by that. You recognize the, the innate uh, connection between uh, hitting our environmental goals and uh, the economy. It's absolutely essential. You, you know, livelihoods are, are, are just transition, however you want to frame it. It's all absolutely part of it. Um, and that happened to me in the course of that journey, um, recognizing the broadest interpretation of sustainable development. Um, and I came back, got back into radio, but um, again, by a convoluted route, started looking at how um, people's use and access of radio uh, could tackle poverty it, it, and multiple forms of disadvantage, which led to setting up a charity to establish community radio stations um, in disadvantaged areas of the UK. So that was my leap from mainstream media into um, the world of social enterprise, basically. And we, we spent a while trying to uh, establishing stations learning what made a sustainable social enterprise, but looking much more um, at, the, uh, at the sort of urban regeneration and economic and social sides of sustainable development, I'd say. And communications is quite a big part of the carbon literacy project. I mean, it's Massive kind part. of, it's, it's in its aim, isn't it? Yes. Um, do you think that um, the fact that you used to work for community radio um, and you understand communications probably very well, definitely better than me. I know that for a fact, um, because I know that's one of our weaknesses as a, as an environmental management consultancy. Um, do you think it's helpful? Um, has been helpful? Um, helpful? No. Essential? Yes. It, it, it's If you can't frame the message around sustainable development and environment in terms of the values and priorities of the person you're talking to, um, you're not going to get through. It's common sense. So you you have to get back to the basics of communication, of connection, and relating what you've got to say to the values and idioms and cultures of the person you're talking to. And I suppose throughout those first two careers – um, that became just part of what I did. And a vital part of carbon literacy is taking um, taking the climate message out of the environmental niche um, and getting it into the mainstream. I'm sure if you're listening to this, you'd probably qualify as being a resident of that niche 
uh, and uh, of the many, many members of that community that I speak to, the common thread is is that um, I'm in a corner. I'm in, I'm tucked away in a department within my organisation, um, and I'm always, always struggling for greater bandwidth, greater, um, greater, better foothold better resources, better recognition for the priorities, for the urgency of what we're trying to achieve. And often carbon literacy is seen as a great route to getting that message through into an organisation. I came across you guys through Protect Our Winters, which is a um, charity based in, well, based in the US, but also have the UK arm. And um, you, I'd never really heard of this way of doing things before, where Um, Protect Our Winters had kind of written the course on the back of your course and are delivering it with their audience in mind, using your skills and expertise behind the scenes. It's a really, it's a, it's a really clever way. And also it's really cost effective as well, isn't it, for organisations, because it means you really are just trying to help people become carbon literate. I mean, that's, it's absolutely um, what we're about, that this has to be scalable. It would have been great to say, yeah, we've we've made the city of Manchester carbon literate and great and utterly pointless on the scale of, of resolving the climate crisis. Obviously, this has got to be something that can travel and travel and travel. Um, both Dave Coleman, my co- co-director, co-founder of the organisation, We've got a load of experience in training. We love training. And the one thing we have to forbid ourselves doing was delivering training. This had to be about establish, establishing a, a framework uh, for the enabling of meaningful, consistently relevant, um, practical uh, climate empowerment, climate training, however you want to call it. Um, so it had to be. Um, yeah, very, very um, scalable. That's the word I'm stretching for. Um, that that was vital from the outset. Um, so um, we designed a flexible framework for a day's worth of training. We worked with a working group, cross-disciplinary working group of about 30 folk um, to devise this methodology, which lies at the heart of what we do. And that can be used by anyone. So whether it's it's our winter sports friends um, adapting this framework for their people, um, whether it's primary school kids, whether it's um, leaders of local councils, GPs. I mean, uh, seriously, the, the range of folk that have taken it up now um, has sort of proven uh, its, its worth in terms of its adaptability. And... Generally, what people do is come to us and say, yep, we'd like to design a course. And we say, well, here is the means by which you do it. Here's the frame with the things that you need to uh, do, the frame within which you put your content, as well as the stuff we recommend, to make it work for your people. So that's broadly how it works. That's also evolved for sectors. So we're looking at sector-wide toolkits as well. Brilliant. And you've got some amazing good news stories about some of the outcomes of 
some of the early courses, haven't you? I'm thinking of um, council in particular. I are you allowed to talk about? You allowed to talk about? No names, no patrol, if that's all right, Will. But I mean, yeah, no, that's abso- that's absolutely fine. It's but, um, um, we're amongst definitely friends. Definitely <laughs> talk about it then. Definitely talk about it then with no names. But it's, I, I think it just for me, it, it really accentuated the point of how powerful such a course could be. One of the great foundations of carbon literacy is that it motivates and empowers someone to utilize their best skills for um, this this mission to tackle the climate crisis. So um, we have our first carbon literate council treasurer um, who, who <laughs> cheerfully admits that he was told to come on the training by his boss um, and then came out, oh no, he really, really got it, came out of the training. And a few days later, he went back to his team to do what council treasurer's and he had to buy 30 bin lorries. Um, and he said, right, I want 30 electric bin lorries. And his team had to say, well, um, they don't quite uh, exist yet, uh, to which we, they, they, the, our treasurer had to say, well, will they exist soon? Yep, yeah, there's a prototype somewhere in the north trundling around. Um, so if we buy 30 bin lorries diesel, even the best diesel, they'll be obsolete soon. Yep. So I can't really buy 30 bin lorries like my procurement framework says. And they said, nope. Um, So he changed his procurement framework so that he could keep up with the latest technology and not be lumbered with 30 obsolete or soon to be obsolete trucks. So um, he changed his framework that way. And he did something similar with, sorry, I'm just going to move the mic. Um, he did something similar with um, a school who wanted a new gas boiler, but their boiler was broken down, and he put ground source heat pumps through a procurement process for the first time in that council, and he was really proud. We nearly got it through, he says. If they hadn't just relayed the school playground, which of course would have had to be dug up again for heat pumps, um, we could have got it through. Um There are myriad stories of the application of someone's existing skill set, existing position to maximize their clout. One of the ones I'm proudest of most recently uh, was a financial director from a large-ish public sector organization who went through her carbon literacy and came out, um, I should say, at the end of every carbon literacy course, you have to design the most significant actions you can do for yourself and for a group. And as this financial director's action, she put down that she would put her entire estate onto renewable power. And that's an estate of, I think it was 138 sites. Mm. And she'd come to it relatively cold as well. So it's potential not just to induce the climate change penny drop moment, with which you're familiar, but actually to move people on from that into meaningful action. So we've got a framework for that. People can adapt it to their own, uh, and that's absolutely crucial to its success. It's that trigger. It's the catalyst um, that moves it into the mainstream. And I think that's what's really – because most of our listeners will understand – all about environmental training. I mean, we do environmental training, but we, the people that do the 
and I've got my hands up inverted commas kind of environmental training are all people that actually understand environmental training. And this is why I got and I'm so excited about the Carbon Literacy Project because you've just named two examples and you've probably got countless other ones. It is training for uh, for normal normal people that aren't, you know, that actually it just it, it helps everyone be able to understand sustainability as a whole and the environment and has actions that come out of it. And I think that's what's so powerful. And it's accessible to because it's because it's accessible in so many different levels, isn't it? It's accessible financially, but it's also accessible academically. And yes. you don't need to go into it having had a master's in environment or having having read about sustainability for years and years and years. You can go into it with a completely blank sheet of paper. And that's our ideal learner. Some of our best advocates are people that have been mandated to join in and they've had that moment of uh, awareness raising, discovery, um, or as we sometimes jokingly put it in the office, the oh crap moment. <laughs> when you, <laughs> you realise, oh no, this thing I've had at the back of my mind and didn't really know, no, I can't ignore it, damn it, that mm-hmm. moment. Um, and you could um, strand yourself there in the doom and gloom of climate change. Um, but actually, that journey of, re- of realization and empowerment, enabling, that's vital. If you look on the, fr- the front page of our website, carbonliteracy.com, um, at the bottom, we've got a marvelous vox pop from the BBC. The BBC have used carbon literacy at scale. And in the middle of it, there's this uh, young, I don't know if he's an assistant producer, anyhow, young BBC person uh, says, uh, by the middle of the training, you feel like a terrible human being. And then you spend the rest of the day finding out what you can do about it. You know, And, and that, that, to me, sums it up so, so well. You could strand someone in disabling pessimism and depression, as you well know with the climate message. So we match that with relevance and, most of all, uh, loads of ideas that then the learner adapts to their own setting. So, you know, it's absolutely crucial that uh, that relevance is threaded all the way through. Indeed, we insist on it, typically. So um, if you or another company were to come to us, you would be presented by the the Carbon Literacy Standard our core text, and you would have to design your training against it. And it's got the stuff you'd, you'd expect about the science of climate change, uh, the potential, the impacts of inaction, some pol- relevant policy regulatory frameworks, and some of the core solutions. Um, and you have to design training that incorporates that. But there's also methodology that insists on consistent relevance throughout. An ideal course will start with uh, an introduction from the boss or someone uh, credible within the sector saying that this is why it matters to us. We did a pilot uh, GPs course on a hot day and we were able to say to the GPs in that room, well, how does this change what uh, your colleagues will be doing back at the practice? oh, we'll get much, many more people turning up, dot, 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 you know. Um, So that relevance 
is absolutely crucial. So much so um, that we have pretty much banned polar bears from carbon literacy. It's, it's not that I've got anything against polar bears at all. It, 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 no. it's, it's more that iconic megafauna can only take you so far in uh, actually acting on this. It, it, it's very good at inducing um, doom and mm. pessimism. You have to take people further. You have to make the connection between who they are and what they value um, and give them things to do. And that's all wrapped up in the course design. Liberty, who you've met, will absolutely love to hear what you've just said because she's banned it from our from all of our communications as well. <laughs> I, I, I used to dress up as a polar bear on demos. Mm. You know, mm. <laughs> yeah, they have their place. You know, it's it's um, not in our training though. Really, isn't it? no. It's, it's uh, no. Um, it, it's got to be about the nuts and bolts of what you do. Um. One of my favorite examples of that happening, uh, we were training some public sector chief executives for Andy Burnham, our mayor. Um, and one of the uh, learners was our chief constable. And we started that training by asking people what happened to their job in extreme weather. So I said to the chief constable, well, what happens to your job when it gets hot? He said, well, I'm almost tempted to put on a Dixon or Doc Green voice, but he doesn't speak like that. <laughs> he, he, he said, oh, go on, please. No, no, no. no. Go on, please. No, 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 no. He'll listen and I'll get in trouble. As, uh, no, no. Ian um, said, uh, well, yeah, we get more trouble. And I said, what do you mean you get more trouble? Well, we get, we get more violence. We get more stealing. And um, I said, well, yeah, okay, that's great canteen room banter, Ian. He said, no, that's not banter. We've got the data. All right, if you've got the data, I said, um, what temperature does that start at? He says the graph swings upwards from 18 degrees centigrade. And the room went, wow. So you actually get more trouble, more uh, stretch in an overstretched police force from 18 degrees onwards. And all the other public wow. sector bosses around the room were going, Oh, I know what that means for me. So do you want more hot days? Nah, not really. You know, uh, we're working with the fire services as well. In Greater Manchester, uh, they get more call-outs on extreme weather than they do for Guy Fawkes. It, this is part of your job, you know. So we can bring that home from the start, in the middle, at the end. It's it's absolutely crucial to the success of this thing. Yeah, I bet. And so... Where do you where do you see yourself going over the next year, two years, three years internationally? Um, what where where do you see yourself? Um, a couple of weeks ago, we clocked our fifteen thousandth learner, um, which for a small uh, social enterprise ain't half bad. We're really proud of it. That's, it, 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 well, no, in our frame, against the scale of the climate crisis, it's peanuts, it's a drop in the ocean. Um, no, it, it, where we need to be, uh, replicating uh, massively. Um, we uh, need to expand our network of organizations like us in different sectors, in different geographical areas. And we're doing this at the moment. Um, one um, amazingly potent example is um, the, the UN 
have a network for the promotion of the SDGs in business schools globally called PRME, Principles of Responsible Management Education. And the prime, as they call themselves, the prime network um, are disseminating carbon literacy across the odd hundred business schools across the world. Uh, made a lot easier through um, our enforced use of of Zoom and Teams based training, mm-hmm. um, but that's that's flying out. Um, I think as we record, Copenhagen Business School are doing their first carbon literacy for students online session today. As a result of that, um, so just spreading and spreading and spreading is the only thing to do. We've got great ambitions for COP26. We're talking to one of the Glasgow universities about staging a, um, uh, a carbon literacy school, a carbon, a, a carbon, a, staging a carbon literacy school at uh, COP26 for the delegates there. Lots of short workshops showing off the best mm. of carbon literacy across the many, many sectors where we work. Just don't get the British government involved. Uh, I shouldn't say that, should I? <laughs> shouldn't. We're paid by them. Oh, God, that goes on. No, uh, no, we've got an amazing project going on with the government, which I could tell you about, if you wish. Oh, good. Oh, good. It's always good to hear good stories about um, that. That's good. Um, well, so what's, um, what would you like? So, We've heard all about the um, carbon literacy projects. What would you like to have people taking away from this? I mean, we. I mean, what I was thinking when I was um, talking to you initially was there will be listeners in organisations that could disseminate this within their organisation. But on top of that, is there anything that you could think of that um, you'd like people to take away from? I think there's a broader issue than carbon literacy is the importance of behavior change in this overall process of change that we're all trying to induce. Um, It's very easy, particularly if you're very well qualified in environmental solutions and technology to look to what I would call quick fix solutions, um, necessary uh, physical, technical solutions about thermostats, about insulation, renewables, etc., um, but it's the realization of how much more effective the take up and use of those solutions are if there is effective behavior change in the mix. And that goes throughout an organization, at leadership, shop floor, um, in the supply chain, um, to know that, to be blunt, the, the returns on your investment are greater if you have effective behavior change in the mix. We have so far not had the resource to properly quantify the carbon impacts of carbon literacy. I wanted desperately to do this at the outset, and the academics around the table rolled around in, in, in laughter, saying, Phil, we've got to tell you something about the chain of attribution in research, and this is wildly complex, and you need a cast of thousands and a huge budget. And uh, so we've not yet done that. But Jacobs Engineering, the multinational, have looked at what we do, and compared it to other things where they have done measurements like this, other behavior change initiatives, and they are happy to be quoted on their guesstimate that carbon literacy will save the average workplace 5 to 15% energy uh, if supported appropriately in its aftermath, etc. So it's just common sense that carbon literate 
occupants of a building, carbon literate workforce are going to save more energy and, and just do more. That, that, and that's within an organizational level. But I think the importance of behavior change is massively ramped up by what's going on around us now with the pandemic. Mm. Um, today, we read of the political giant that is Nigel Farage hoisting his flag um, to the anti-lockdown banner. I am uh, face-palming <laughs> massively yeah. at this point, I need to stress, um, that... The people that um, out of uh, confirmation bias or sheer opportunism that would derail climate action, I think we're getting a little snapshot of that in the anti-lockdown, anti-mask uh, stuff that we see at the fringes of what's going on now. That will certainly slow down what's going on on the COVID response. So effective, meaningful, stakeholder-led behavior change is all the more essential if we're going to bring on the uh, rapid, large-scale responses that we need to the climate crisis. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for explaining um, more about carbon literacy projects. It's so, I mean, it's just such a key part of what we need to do. And um, thank you for being, you know, helpful on that journey for everyone, really. I've only just started, Will. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, no, there's, a, there's a load more to say. We launched in, in 2012, and I'm not going to say, that wasn't a preamble to tell you the whole story. I know you need to wrap up. But... Um, there's a, an extraordinary collaborative network around this. I think anyone in, involved in sustainable development and environment would recognize that sense of sharing. Uh, and that's, that's massively there with the Carbon Literacy Network as a whole. Hundreds of organizations who are willing to help the other. Our first FTSE 100 company is, is Autotrader. Um, and... Um, They've, they're very happy to help advocate for us and talk of their journey of how it enhances what's already an, a superb employer, employee experience um, for their staff and how they've brought on carbon literacy. But then we had another digital marketplace come to us um, in another sector, completely different sector. And we had no one in their sector we could introduce them to. A lot of what we do is about saying, well, talk to these folk and see what they made of it. But then we said to Auto Trader, well, you know, would you share some of what you've done with, with this lot? And they said, yeah, of course. No, naturally, come, come and see. So it grows through this amazing um, amount of sharing. Uh, and there are sectors also who are... I should say, sorry, there are companies who are now seeking to instigate sector-wide shared resources for carbon literacy. There's a big company in uh, the chemicals industry, for example, um, who are thinking about, well, we don't need every company in the chemicals sector to design their own course. Let's come up with a toolkit where people can, can pick up and just use some shared resources take away the need for course design and just crack on. 
So I, I think in terms of where we're going, the use of this toolkit, sector-wide toolkit approach is also going to come on very strongly. That's what we're doing with the government. So government department bays have commissioned us to create shared uh, carbon literacy training kits for central government, local government, the NHS, the emergency services and universities. And these are everything you need off the shelf to go and do your own carbon literacy training in those sectors. And we're hoping to use that methodology in the private sector as well. So trade associations would be interested in stuff like this as well then? Yes, absolutely vital. Um, And ones where this might be seen as contentious. So there there are, I don't want to name names, but there there are some uh, sectors where this is seen as, yeah, contentious, not mainstream. So how would you use a suitably designed carbon literacy training scheme to get the message across that this is mission critical to us? And the pace of change is so fast and necessary. And this is, how we, this is why we're doing it, and this is how you can get involved. Uh, one organization, we talked to a multinational who are, who are working with us. They were hit by a science-based target from head office. Uh, and they were going whoa, <laughs> that's huge. <laughs> you know, so they were sort of left a bit reeling by this massively ambitious, great science-based target. And they're using carbon literacy to explain why that's happening and to mobilize. So really good idea. It, it, it's, uh, it comes up in different frames, uh, depending on the sector, depending on the organization. It's... Um... It's that dissemination of knowledge, isn't it, that's just so important? I was talking to um, an environmental lead for uh, the local Catholic diocese, and I was complimenting him on the Pope's uh, encyclical uh, that he brought out for the Paris Agreement. Marvellous, wide-ranging treatise on the links between... Uh, our care for the planet, the climate crisis, and the evils of capitalism. Um, I say this as uh, as a non-religious person. So I was um, congratulating this priest on the great work of his boss. And he said, uh, Phil, you've got to understand that we get a lot of uh, messages from high office, and they're met with a wave of passionate apathy. And I said, yeah, I get it. I get it. And this is how do you, without knowledge of the relevance of that message from head office, doesn't have to be the Vatican, any head office, mm-hmm. why would the staff uh, go, yeah, brill, yeah, fantastic. A, as a means of embedding the common sense of whether it's encyclical or a science-based target, uh, we know that that's where carbon literacy lives. I think I think that um, science-based target and um, carbon literacy is such a nice partnership because we've we've seen we see so many organisations now rather than sticking their fingers up in the air and going five let's reduce by five percent this year ten percent next year we can now actually say right science-based target achieves exactly what you want to achieve alongside the rest of the world so therefore 
And so lots and lots of organizations do it and we put them through that. But again, it's then once, once they've got that target, which is usually an ambitious target and senior management led, it's then going, right, now we need to actually work out what to do and how to do it. And um, for that to be a part of that journey is incredibly crucial. We always say that if you were sending firefighters into a burning building, you blooming well train them. We're facing a crisis. And the idea of sending untrained colleagues to tackle that crisis is just bonkers. So you ha- so that's almost the first stage of mobilization is knowledge. Mm. And that knowledge has to include the framing of the relevance of this thing and the empowerment. And it comes back to a very human level. We get consistently good uh, feedback from HR teams who do the post-training survey, et cetera, et cetera. And I'd love to do an in-depth interview with a with a sample of the learners because I think part of the positivity comes from a simple message within the training that here is your organization empowering you to do something good. Now, regardless of the organization, I mean, some organizations are there to do good, in inverted commas, others that might not be seen as part of the brief. But here in doing this carbon literacy training, okay, we've got climate change. This is what we're doing. What can you do? And here's your permission to do this as well. So I think that's part of why it's so consistently popular. Mm. That makes sense. That makes sense. Is Is there anything you want to add? Um, no, you know what? <laughs> I'd better shut up now. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. I, no, I, it's brilliant that you are, yeah, that you have so much to talk about this because, um, and you can hear the passion in your voice and you can hear that um, want and need to be able to help more people. It's, um, and, that's, and that's really important. And I guess I'm really lucky because I get to talk to people like yourselves that have, that desire to help change the way that we are. And we're seeing a massive change at the moment and it's only getting stronger. Yes, sir, As, right. I mean, you, you guys are really busy. We're really busy. And it's just for the first time in my 20 year history, I'm actually quite positive about what's going on now. Yeah. And I don't think it's too late either. I actually don't think it's too late, which is what's also quite nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Have you told people what date we're recording this, Will? <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> yeah, we're recording it on um, the – it's the day before the election. Is, yep. Or is it today's? Today no, is the American No, no, it's election. tomorrow. Come on, keep up. Keep up. Oh, I thought it was tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. I was suddenly listening and I went, I'm sure I read somewhere it was the 2nd of November. But, um, yeah, no, it is the 3rd of November. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, but I, to be honest with you, whatever happens there, I don't think it actually makes a difference because they, because the people actually care. They do. And so I don't think it matters who's in power now. And I think this is where this is going to become a bigger and bigger divide. And this is where politicians need to be very careful because they are not in control anymore. 
that people are going, actually, we can be in charge of our own destiny and we will do what we want to do. And there seems to be a divide that is happening. And there are people that seem to sit inside that politics going, oh, no, we should do what our politicians say. But on the whole, people are using their brains and their hearts and they're just being pragmatic about the situation, going, well, it's no, you know, turn off our lights. Do, but, but even in strictly business framing, um, uh, why would you be fossil fuel powered when solar is cheaper? Yep. Mm. You know, it, 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 it's so many moments of duh. Um, it doesn't matter. You know, if, if Trump is trying to prop up the coal industry for votes, if solar panels are cheaper, it, it doesn't matter what he does. Yeah. And, and similarly, big employers reliant on uh, the best young talent know that their organizations need to be organizations with purpose. So even totally cynically, they have to start walking the walk on this if they are to commercially survive, because without that young talent, they're dead in the water. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. I mean, RBS or NatWest Group have quite openly gone, we're not, we are not investing anymore into fossil fuels. We, they are, they've made a significant change in the way that they do things. And they're not the only banks. And these are massive, massive multinational banks across the globe. And they are all saying the same things. Mm. So I, we'll either be run by corporates in 20 years' time <laughs> or the politicians will have caught up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, stay tuned. <laughs> Actually, there's a, really good, there's a really good TV series on at the moment on the BBC about, what I think, five years' time. Um, I can't remember what it's called. We watched the first episode last night. It's actually really quite depressing. It's oh, about years a new and years. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Marvellous. Russell T. Davis, Manchester writer. Yes. Um, yes. Actually, I'm talking to you from about 400 metres from Nan's house, in the, where oh, the, really? there's a matriarch in the series, for those that yeah. haven't seen it. Yeah. Um, it's actually shot in my neighbourhood, weirdly. No, it's a it, oh, massive must view if entirely depressing <laughs> yeah, yeah we want we we wanted to watch it because we wanted to be uplifted we thought oh we know some of those people that looks quite good fun and we're literally watching it oh my word this is really quite depressing and it was the fact that the first one they go all the way through and you're like huh what's gonna happen <laughs> the, and it has marvelous quotable quotes which i'll misquote now there's a moment where they're all sat around watching tv news and one of them says I remember when I thought the news was boring. I long for boring news. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's brilliant. Yes. So definitely watch watch that. What's it called again? Year- y- years and years. Years and years. Um, there you go. On iPlayer. Yes. Brilliant, Phil. Thank you so much for today. You're very Thank welcome. You. Thanks for inviting me, Will. Real pleasure. No, really, really good to hear more about what it is that you guys do and how you do it. It was great having Phil on the podcast. Um, I just hope that you found it as fascinating as I do. And you can kind of tell that he was a radio DJ and he is very comfortable with being interviewed. We have some exciting plans um, forming around the Carbon Literacy Project and we are currently going through that um, at the moment. And it's on the back of the conversations that we've had with Phil and his team. And I think um, what's really, really, I guess, exciting for us and um, useful for 
you guys to know as listeners is have a look at the Carbon Literacy Project. Look and see if you could deliver it yourself because it has such a far-reaching um, remit. And the more people that understand what it is that Phil and his team are doing, the more that we can get as many organisations to be as sustainable as possible. Um, they have a great format, really good for communications. And having been doing what I do for so long now, coming up to 20 years, um, I, I see an absolute, you know, amazingly useful um, piece of, um, you know, information that is able to be disseminated amongst so many other um, people. And you could be a part of that journey. You could either um, take it on for your organisation and get everyone else to um, do it in your organisation, or you could be a trainer yourself and you could be putting it out to other organisations. Uh, we have now looked into it and we can see more and more good news stories on the back of people that have gone through it. So um, it was incredibly insightful and um, useful to have Phil on the podcast.